Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to episode number 21 of the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. I am one of your co-hosts, Marcus in the Darkest, along with... Hello, I'm Ray Coop. Good to be with you because we're going to be talking about one of my all-time favorite rock and roll artists. This guy flipped the rock and roll world upside down all by himself. He absolutely did. Jimi Hendrix started out from humble beginnings uh, in Seattle, born there. He, they actually named him um, Johnny Allen Hendrix. His nickname was Buster. Uh, one of his mom's friends called him Buster, and that was his nickname around Seattle. And even in his later years, people still referred to him as Buster from his close people who knew him, friends. right? Yeah. Life in the 1940s in the Seattle for the African American community was not great. In Jimmy's case, um, his dad, Al, had met Lucille Jeter. Um, They became very good friends and got married. They had Jimmy and his brother, Leon Marshall Hendricks. They had a hard time. That's the only way to put it. They had a hard time. They Um, really did. The the situation was stressful. Uh, There was alcohol involved, sometimes too much. Lots of alcohol. Because Lucille ended up actually dying from her alcoholism and... During that time after that, and even before, Jimmy and Leon were, I say, shuttled around. They moved between friends and family members in yep. the Seattle area. They also lived in Canada at yeah. Al's mother's for a while, yeah, his for a grandmother's. While. So, and they would live there off and on. So, yeah, they were kind of, they lived a gypsy lifestyle, sort of. During the separations and getting back together between Lucille and Al, they would have other babies that they ended up giving up for adoption. Yeah, you told me more about that when we were talking before the podcast. Because she was drinking a lot, yeah. and he was drinking, and she would continue to drink and smoke during pregnancy. Oh. So babies were born with mental issues due to the fact that the alcohol and the tobacco were so heavily involved wow. in her pregnancy. So she ended up giving all those kids up for adoption over the years. And Al was away uh, in the army. He was in the army. In fact, he didn't see Jimmy until he was uh, how, how, like three years old or something. Something like that. Like that. He was. Uh, he didn't see him until after he got discharged from the army, and he was already a boy by then. So, I mean, that these are the hard times that Jimmy's family faced, um, being separated, mom being an alcoholic, poor, and, and very, very poor. poor, and that was life in the black community for a lot of people in Seattle in that era. 
There was also where Jimmy lived, and his parents did this on purpose, brought him to a very poor mixed area where there were not only black people that right. were poor, there were Latinos, there were whites, there were Asians, Asians too, there were yeah. Indians, there was everybody who was poor, no matter what color your skin was, you live together. And it's very that way in a lot of other communities around the world where nobody really gives a crap about the color of your skin. They're right. all poor together and everybody's making ends meet and these communities work really right. hard together to look after each other. And this seemed to be one of those communities, even though it was a community of broken homes and poverty. I know you've read it. And when I read the book Room Full of Mirrors, I could tell you that the the picture that is painted of the overall situation there in Seattle at that time, and specifically for the Hendricks family, is very depressing and stark. It and, is, and and it really they he did a great job of painting that picture. So Jimmy, who was Johnny when he was born, later gets renamed by his parents. A lot of people thought that he did it as a showbiz thing later, and his actual name was changed to James Marshall Hendricks in reflection of his brother Leon Marshall Hendricks. Mm -hmm. Jimmy and Leon stayed pretty close uh, through those early years. They they managed to keep them together um, most of the time when they were kids. But that's kind of the background. We want to give you the background because I think one of the themes that we're coming across here, Marcus, is that we're looking at a lot of people who had issues when they were adults, young adults, who had traumatic situations as children. And a lot of what we see in the uh, artists of the 60s and 70s, um, the drug use, the crazy lifestyle, the the devil-may-care attitude, a lot of time it's traceable back to uh, childhood trauma. Absolutely. So. And we've learned that over the years through the advancements we're making in society. But you have to look at the fact that Jimmy was also a little different, man. That guy was unique. He was special. His family friends noticed it from the beginning. He saw the world sort of like in color, I guess. You could say that he saw auras around people. People get really weirded out when you talk about that. But this is these are things that he described and things that he claimed that he saw and who the fuck are we to say, no, you didn't see him when That's we right. can't see through your eyes. So in that way, I respect him for what he saw and for how he saw the world. But I also think one of the important aspects of understanding Jimi Hendrix's music is understanding who he is or who he was as a person. And by understanding who he was as a person, we can really feel his music at a whole different level. I would have to agree with you wholeheartedly. And we're off and running on episode 21 of the Imbalanced History Podcast and is brought to you as always by our good friends at Crooked Eye Brewing in the heart of Hapro. They have the cure for what ails you since 2014 and we thank them for their support of the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll and they've just extended their, uh, their support of us as a sponsor. So we thank everyone at Crooked Eye for that. So we kind of lay the base here. Jimmy's uh, not brought up in a great environment, but he starts finding his way to music. Uh, as a kid, there's this story that uh, he, f he started playing a, a broom at his elementary school, carrying it with him all the time, like a little broomstick, and would always like, act like he was playing the guitar. It kind of got him a little bit of a squ little scorn, maybe. I don't know if you want to yeah. put it that way, but people were like, hey, what's with the kid in the broom, you know? What's he doing? Is he a witch or anything like that? But then uh, didn't he get like, didn't he pick like a one-string ukulele out of a trash can or something yeah, like yeah. that? Yeah, yeah, because dad didn't yeah. have the money so yeah. he said i can't buy a guitar but he found that and then and he, al let him 
pick it out of the trash, and he worked the hell out of that ukulele's one string. And he, one of the things that he did was he imitated the sounds that he was hearing on the streets with that right. one string. And raindrops was the first sound that he learned how to make on that one string ukulele. And then he started doing the sirens and the street sounds. And then I think his growth went from there. Off of one string on a ukulele. Well, well, eventually he does get an acoustic guitar. Uh, for $5, it was still a, a decent amount of money, not like the price of in guitars In the 40s, that was is. a ton of money. Yeah, uh, yeah, it was 1958. I had just been born, and Jimmy got his first acoustic. Maybe I felt it out there in uh, baby land. So Al must have seen something, you know, that uh, that something was up, because eventually he bought him uh, an electric guitar, and uh, Jimmy started playing the music that he heard, like you said, you know, and they started playing along with artists like Muddy Waters and B.B. King and Howlin' Wolf. Uh, those those artists played a big part, and you can hear that in his music, especially the earlier stuff. With the, It's based in the blues. So much influence from those giants of that era. Jimmy could never read music or write music formally. He It was all by it. ear and feel, right? Yep. It was all by ear and feel, and that type of a gift is something you see more common with somebody like Ray Charles or Stevie Wonder, who doesn't have the vision to see the notes versus hear the notes you know it was sort of that kind of a gift i, mean, I think it kept him open his music as far as music appreciation too you go forward a little bit he goes to a, a concert by hank ballard and the midnighters in seattle and he kind of meets billy davis who's the guitar player from hank ballard's band at the time and those two remained friends through the rest of the, uh, jimmy's life uh, and that was neat because he showed him some of the tricks you know the tricks of the trade here kid let me show you a couple things on that guitar you know Wow. And, and that led to them having a, a, a 10 year plus friendship. That's just, you know, crazy that this guy took him under the, his wing like that. And then look at what he ended up becoming and I doing know. in just such a short t period as well. That's one of the amazing things about Hendrix, the Absolutely. short period of time. So he starts forming bands. Uh, the Velvetones is a band that uh, is mentioned, and he realized he couldn't be heard over the rest of the band, so he wanted that damn electric guitar, and finally he got one. And uh, his dad helped him, actually. I guess maybe he was starting to see that this kid really had something. So he takes that Supro Ozark, and he starts playing. He goes to gigs. Um, there's all kinds of clubs in Seattle, and he starts making the rounds. I found out from reading the book Loser that you lent to me that there was actually a club called Spanish Castle. So when he wrote Spanish Castle Magic years later, it was about that time when he was a kid roaming the streets, just looking for a place to plug in and play. Jimmy was a real open and trusting guy. He left his guitar backstage at a gig, and I think he was shocked by the fact that it wasn't there when he went back the next night. Yeah, he couldn't believe that. So Al took pity and got him a silver tone Dan Electro, red. So... <sighs> We've talked about trouble finding rock stars in their young years. It always happens. Jimmy wasn't a bad guy. He didn't do anything, but he was riding in stolen cars, which could have been a song, man. He should have written a song about that. I bet he did. And yeah, maybe when he was in the Army, because basically they said, you're either going to jail or you're going in the Army, son. And he chose the Army. Absolutely. And ended up being assigned to the 101st Airborne Division, one of the most well-known units of the U.S. Army. Uh, stationed down in Kentucky at Fort Campbell. He talked to his dad. He wrote him a letter and said he was nothing but physical training and harassment for two weeks. Then you go to jump school and you get hell. So while he's down there uh, at Fort Campbell, he's playing his guitar. Dad sent it down because it sounded like he really needed the friend that the guitar was, right? 
And one day Billy Cox, also in the Army, walks by and hears this sound coming out of the officers' club, I guess, or wherever the, the enlisted men could gather. And he goes in and he meets Jimmy, and those two would be tight for the rest of their lives, uh, for the rest of Jimmy's life. And Billy always spoke fondly of Jimmy after his death, too, you know. So they started playing together, and then uh, <laughs> if you fell asleep on duty on post or something, that's a big no-no, right? A yeah, huge you know, no-no. And a couple other things, and they thought it would be uh, best if he got an honorable discharge and went on his way, so he did. And then he moved to Clarksville, Tennessee nearby, and shortly after that, uh, Billy Cox would come and move to Clarksville. But meanwhile... Jimmy was playing and getting busy. He found himself some work on the Chitlin circuit. We've talked about that before. Uh, it's a southern uh, U.S.-based uh, performers association uh, because things were still separated then. Yes. Uh, the and, South was still racist and divided. and Yeah. Non-white performers were not allowed to perform, eat in the same restaurants, perform in the same buildings, sleep in the same hotels, do anything that white people were allowed to do. So they had the Chitlin Circuit. The actual name of the organization was the Theater Owners Booking Association, working for some other big names at the time. Uh, Jimmy played with Wilson Pickett, Slim Harpo, Sam Cooke. He was in Ike and Tina. Tina. Yeah, he was with them. And Jackie Wilson, too. Yeah. Jimmy was one of those guys, and we, we were listening to a record that he played on in those days before we started the podcast, and you can hear that his playing was restricted uh, by the form of the music and uh, by the fact that he was pretty much just keeping rhythm and throwing in a couple little frills here and there uh, on Don Covey's Mercy Mercy, which he is, if you ever listen to the original Mercy Mercy by Covey, that's Jimmy on guitar. So he started to feel a little bit hemmed in by, the, by being a sideman. And um, decides to venture out onto his own, and he moves to Harlem. And he made a very important friend there. Oh, yeah. The lady who inspired a song, Foxy Lady, Lithophane Pridgen. They called her Faye. Faye, yep. Yeah, and she's really uh, an influential part of Jimmy's life there. She took him around, showed him around. She knew people. She went uh, and took him got him to the Apollo Theater where he won an amateur contest got him a little profile there uh, people started recommending him for things and got him in the uh, into the on the radar for the Isley brothers who uh, brought him into their uh, backup band the IB specials and he was, obviously he's a kid you want to play with the Isley brothers kid you're damn straight I do yes. and you can hear Jimmy on testify from the Isley brothers uh, they put that out in June of 64 it didn't make any big deal but he was the guitar player and right after that came the Don Covey record we were talking about that did make the charts Covey was a pretty hard artist it's funny because later in the story we'll talk about how Jimmy and Keith Richards connected directly but at this point the Stones hear Covey's ber- version and they want to do it and end up doing a, a releasing in 1965 and that's the version that most people know of Mercy Mercy but if you go back and hear the uh, original one with Jimmy on guitar it did pretty well, too. So, you know, and this is what he's doing. He, he, he's playing with the Isleys. He ends up playing with Little Richard's touring band, The Upsetters. And he did a record with Little Richard called I Don't Know What You Got, But It's Got Me. And that was written by Don Covey. <laughs> it's a very tight circle at this point. That one didn't do as well as Mercy Mercy. But he's doing these things, and he's starting to get experienced. Uh, he's working uh, with a singer named Rosalie Brooks 
who hooked up with a song that Arthur Lee wrote called My Diary. It's funny because Arthur Lee would form Love and Jimmy became a big promoter of Love when they started to come out since he was already in the spotlight. These are the way things happen, I guess. He ends up getting on uh, Nashville's Channel 5 Night Train. It's his first TV appearance with Little Richard. And if you can find that video, send me a link because I'm dying to see it. So this is what he's doing. And um, where it is that... Richard thought he was showing him up a little bit. And so Richard's brother, Robert, fired Jimmy. (laughs) And he's back in New York, and he's playing with Curtis Knight and the Squires. They kind of had a chance meeting at a hotel they were both staying at, and he worked with them for a while. You know, we were talking to Kenny Aronson, how gigs would just come to him People would call him up, heard he was available. They'd call him up, and he'd go out on the road for six months or eight months. It's kind of where Jimmy was at in his career. And um, somewhere in there, he signed paper he shouldn't have signed with a guy named Ed Chalpin. And it was a recording contract, and it would come back to bite him later. But let's not get ahead of ourselves, although we are known to do that here on the <laughs> Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. And he, he kept doing work. Uh, he toured with Joey D and the Starlighters, did some work with King Curtis. And when he moves to New York in 66... He moves to the village, Greenwich Village. For those who don't know, we call it the village. And he got a residency, a Cafe Wa, which uh, is still there, I think, and is a legendary joint. And that's when things start to happen. He forms his own band. Is that Jimmy James and the Blue Flames? You know it is. You know who his guitarist was? Who was his guitarist? Randy California, who would later be in Spirit. What? That's right. They played around New York, and they started to develop uh, their feel, and his style, his style of guitar really started to come out because nobody was telling him what to play or not to play. They did some last concerts uh, as the backup band for John Hammond, the son of John Hammond, who signed Bob Dylan and Bruce Springsteen, who is a great performer in his own right, at the Cafe Ogogo. And around that time, he was still not feeling like he was breaking through. He just didn't feel like he was getting through. And he meets Linda Keith in New York, and she's a bigger part of the story later. Um, she was seeing Keith Richards at the time, so those two, Jimmy and, and Keith Richards, start to come closer together, right? She kind of got him in front of Andrew Lou Oldham, who managed the Stones at that time, and producer Seymour Stein, who would go on to found Sire Records. They didn't see it. They didn't hear it. They took a pass. Can you imagine taking a pass on Hendrix. I can see it because what he was doing was so experimental and so not of the mm. norm that it probably scared the shit out of people, kind of the way early thrash Metallica scared the shit yeah. out of radio people. Yeah, and, and think about it. There were people who passed on the Beatles, too. So, yeah, you and know. think about the people that passed on Guns N' Roses' appetite in sure. the early days as well, and that shit scared them, too. So, Well, she uh, doesn't give up. This Linda Keith, uh-uh. and she connects him with Chaz Chandler, who's uh, who's leaving. He's going to leave the animals and go on to do uh, grown-up stuff now, I suppose. And in the movie, Jimmy, uh, always by your side, it's really portrayed really well in there, even though it's you know hop, chopped up for Hollywood purposes. So Chandler hears him and he feels it, and he says, "You got to come to England." He gets him to move to England in '66, and the first thing that really grabbed him was a single that, or a song that was his first single, "Hey Joe." Uh, it did better initially in England than it did when it was released as a single in the U.S. But think about what "Hey Joe" is in the rock pantheon now, right? Mm-hmm. And so, that's a yeah, that's a legendary song. Also, before you continue, Jimmy had a lot of trouble getting into England at first. 
because getting in and out of countries to stay for extended periods of time was a lot tougher due to paperwork. So Chaz Chandler and somebody else were telling the customs guy that Jimmy was in England to pick up a royalty check from a record company, and he had to do it in person. And so... The British Customs said you got a week, right? And he had a week to basically figure out how to stay longer, right? And which he ended up doing. Sure. And uh, Linda Keith helped them there. Uh, she helped them make some connections. He gets in the studio. He records "Hey Joe." It's becoming a hit. He also records "Purple Haze" and "The Wind Cries Mary." And at that point, imagine you're Seymour Stein. You hear the finished product. You go, "Did I miss this?" He ends up hooking up with Track Records, which is the label that the the managers of the Who ran. If you ever look on some of the old um, reprise U.S. releases, there's a little Track logo on there. So they get the records recorded. They get them out over there. Things are rolling, and then it hits them. Kathy Etchingham. Two and a half years, those two were together. They met uh, in September that year. They were near as inseparable till almost to the end of Jimmy's life. And they started putting together the experience. Uh, they met Noel Redding. Uh, Jimmy actually met him at an audition for the New Animals, which is ironic, you know, because he was trying out to replace Chaz Chandler, and Jimmy said. No, man, you're coming with me. So they clicked right away, and then they uh, they contacted Mitch Mitchell through a mutual friend. That's how things were done. Ironically, Jimmy James and the Blue Flames was what Jimmy was playing with, right? And Mitch Mitchell had been playing with Georgie Fame and the Blue Flames. Georgie Fame is huge in England, and it was a big gig. Whoa. And, uh, a couple of Blue Flames. Yeah, you got a lot of Blue Flames there. So anyway, so he comes on board, and the experience is formed, you know? And we can continue with episode 21, all about Jimi Hendrix. But first, we need to stop up and talk about our sponsors, the good people at Crooked Eye Brewery at 13 East Montgomery Avenue in Hapro, right in the heart of Hapro. It's always a good time and a fresh brew waiting when you stop by Crooked Eye. And there's more to the fun at Crooked Eye than just the brews. You can check their website out, crookedeyebrewery.com, for a full list of music events and fun scheduled each month. You can see the full schedule of all the different activities. Goat yoga, I think, is a thing now. Yeah. I know there's goat yoga. Yeah, there's all kinds of goat yoga or something wacky uh, like that. Cat yoga is challenging as it is. Brews and yoga. But there's all kinds of fun activities and stuff for everybody, uh, not just the rock and roll uh, at Crooked Eye Brewing. And like I said, they're right there on Montgomery Avenue. Uh, They started with just a little plank bar when they first, a few stools. And now you see what it is after we went down there for the podcast party. And uh, the space allows itself to be used for live music and all kinds of fun activities. And of course, you get the taste, the taste of Crooked Eye. And uh, all those brews made right on the premises, brewed by Chief Brewer Jeff Mulherin. It's a great place for great brews, great people, and fun time. So stop by, and next time you need a pint, make it Crooked Eye in Hatboro. The guys, the brewer, everybody that's involved with Crooked Eye, very friendly, very family-oriented. Yeah. And it was really nice because it gives you that warm, friendly feel when you walk in that door. Serving nightly in the heart of Hatboro, it's Crooked Eye. They have the cure for what ails you since 2014, and we thank them for their support here on the podcast. Absolutely. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price and yes she loves them 
Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. So there's Jimmy. He's in England. He's formed the experience, but he's not done stirring up the shit yet. He's um, just begun. Chandler, Jazz Chandler, takes him. It's a legendary date, October 1st, 1966. He takes him to the London Polytechnic Institute. And there, scheduled to perform, is Cream. Oh, oh I love this story. <laughs> Clapton <laughs> said it was one of the worst days of his life. And probably the best, too. Yeah. He says, he asked if he could play a couple numbers. I said, of course. But he, I had a funny feeling about him. So about halfway through the cream set, Jimmy comes on stage to perform uh, his amazing version of Howlin' Wolf's Killing Floor. That night was recounted years later by Clapton. He said, he played just about every style you could think of and not in a flashy way. I mean, he did a few of his tricks like playing with his teeth and behind his back, but it wasn't in an upstaging sense at all. And that was it. He walked off and my life was never the same again because from that moment he was inspired to raise his game and word is that he went right home and wrote White Room and that uh, that kind of sound started to work its way into the later Cream material. So that's where he is, right? He's got he's got God on notice in England, his hometown of, of London, England. He just went on developing in England. Now, he had success there, and he's touring, and he's recording, but he hasn't quite broken through in the U.S. yet. And um, despite the fact that he's an American artist and he's on the charts in England, uh, he's getting on all the right shows, Top of the Pops, Ready, Steady, Go, right? Then, in 1967, a legendary American festival, the Monterey Pop Festival, is trying to get... First, they were trying to get the Beatles, I think. And the Beatles had just finished touring. And uh, they obviously had great respect for any opinions that were held by members of the Beatles. And McCartney said, listen, this kid, Jimmy Ken Hendrix, is killing it over here. You sh he's American. You should bring him over. He'll be amazing if you put him on at the festival. And so they did. And anyone I've ever talked to who was there, to the public, people said it was the most ungodly thing they'd ever seen on a guitar before or since um, no doubt I mean look at what he did he was a force of nature who was it that described him as a force of nature here's what Jack Bruce said about Eric and about Jimmy with Eric that first time it must have been difficult for Eric to handle because Eric was God and this unknown person comes along and burns 
He puts it slightly differently at the top. Eric was a guitar player. Jimmy was some sort of force of nature. That he was, because he's the closest anything on the British charts came to knocking Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band off the top. They were on top of that album all through 67, and Jimmy got up to number two uh, with the first Hendrix album, or the first Experience album, and it just held spot. It was like his spot, you know? For as much as the adults hated it, and I'm sure Jimmy got panned for being freeform and crazy and doing things that were so out of the ordinary. I mean, look at all these people who panned Zeppelin and Black Sabbath and Deep Purple and Cream and some of these bands in their early days, I'm sure were the same uh, panning of uh, Jimi Hendrix. The innovators always take shit at first, always. And they know they're going to get it. Jimmy didn't care. No. And you know what? He embraced the fact that he couldn't get over Sgt. Pepper on the charts. He goes to the Savile Theater to perform, and it was owned by Brian Epstein at the time. And what's he do? He comes out and does Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band to start his show. And Paul and George were both there. They had to love that. And uh, I remember remember hearing a recording of that where he comes out and just... Just, he has a great intro. It was 20 years ago today. I can't remember exactly what he says on the on the recording I have, and he just wails into it and what like he did with so many other things, he took it in a in a very Hendrix place and to another level, you know, like an unhealthy excess, I think. <laughs> the fact that Paul and George were in the crowd right. when he comes on and all of a sudden he opens up their set, his set with Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. It's just got to be mind blowing. To them, for sure. Yeah. Very so, flattering, too. Wow, man. Such an amazing story, the story of Jimi Hendrix. And we've got so much more to tell, Marcus. I know, Ray. It's seriously a deep, rich story that takes all these weird turns and has all these bizarre variables, I guess you would say, thrown into the mix. Yeah, I think that's part of what made Hendrix special. So what do you say we stop up here? I think that's a fantastic idea. We can make this 21 and 22. Great A very nice two-part podcast. Of Jimi Hendrix. The gods made love and they gave us Jimi Hendrix, so I think that's worthy of two parts. Was it muddy love? (laughs) (laughs) I think so. We like that mud love. All right, so we'll uh, we'll stop up here and we'll see you back here uh, in our normal release pattern for episode 22, part two. Jimi Hendrix. On the imbalanced history of rock and roll. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. Fantasypoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.